Hi folks, I'm Nate Swick, your host of the American Birding Podcast, and I'm going to take a little time up top to talk to you about the American Birding Association's end-of-year appeal, which is running right now. This is our, our biggest fundraising effort of the year, and a strong December sets us up for a great 2018, during which we can continue to provide this great free content to birders around North America and the world. We are not professional fundraisers by any means. We are birders just like you, but we love creating these resources for you all. And even a small donation can really help us do that. Maybe a dollar an episode, $2 an episode. That's American or Canadian dollars. You know, we're not picky. Any of it helps. You can go to www.aba.org slash appeal2017. That too is important. Don't forget it. If you want to make me look really good, you can say that the podcast sent you. Uh, thanks for a great year and thanks for your continued support. On with the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. Uh, I am your host, Nate Swick. Merry Christmas bird count to those who are observing, you know, the, the reason for the season. Uh, this is the last episode of the year and it's a, it's a little different due to the proximity to the big holiday. What that means is that I am recording this well in advance of the time when the episode is actually going out. You know, you get a little insight into the inner workings of the podcast here. Uh, what that means for you is that I am skipping the rare bird alert this episode. I know I can hear the the wailing and, and the gnashing of teeth, but you know, I typically record that last just before the podcast is ready to go out. So you all get the the freshest rare birds right from the rare bird tree. That metaphor is a little weird. I'll pick it all up in the first episode of the new year, cover an entire month. It'll be it'll be a super rare bird alert. Uh, if you can't wait, though, you can always go to the ABA blog on Fridays or the ABA rare bird alert Facebook group. Those things never sleep. One more thing to note, we also have a calendar that was made available by our friends at Rogue Birders the proceeds of which go to help support the AVA's Young Birder programs. I, I realize that this is going to go out after the traditional gift-giving time, but if you want to get a 2018 calendar and you want to help ABA Young Birder programs, you can do that. Uh, there will be a link in the show notes, and it's on the ABA blog, too. Uh, what I have for you today is a special episode of sorts featuring a few of our friends and former guests talking about special Christmas bird count experiences. I think you're going to enjoy it. it. It wasn't planned so much like this, but but each person sort of came at the CBC experience from a slightly different angle. Uh, so that's been uh, kind of really great. It's, it's fun. And, you know, I'll wrap up the episode at the end with a couple corrections and a, and a final brief message. But now... CBC stories. I'll go ahead and start with mine. I did my first Christmas bird count in 1993. It was the Springfield, Missouri count, one that I'd end up doing for several years until I moved away later. I'd only been seriously birding at the time for a few months, and my dad and I had been placed in what turned out to be sort of a, a golden territory, uh, which was really sort of unusual for new birders. It encompassed much of the northern part of the count circle, including its largest and deepest lake, uh, Fellows Lake. So my dad and I were part of this really excellent group of birders, including Bo Brown, who was a local musician and sort of an itinerant bird researcher. And, and when I was first getting started birding, he was, he was the best birder I knew. Local birder Charlie Berwick, and then manager of the Springfield Nature Center, Dave Catland and his wife Anne. Uh, it, was, it was a very good group of birders. And the, and the plan was to spend the pre-dawn hours taking various routes towards Fellows Lake 
dam, stopping now and again for owls, and meeting up at dawn at the lake itself to sort of scope the water for things like goldeneye, horned grebe, and loons, which were potential misses for the count if we didn't if we didn't get them. The morning dawned really bitterly cold. I, I definitely remember that part. But the goldeneye were pretty easy. I they were my lifers at the time, and I remember being pretty impressed with them through a scope. And as the sun came up and things started slowly moving, we we made plans to split up and walk around these cedar groves and forests along the lakeshore to to get the day's first perching birds. I don't remember who, but someone eventually glanced up and pointed out a, a flock of robins passing over. Southwest Missouri has a lot of large robin roosts kind of peppered all over the landscape, and sometimes you can get thousands of birds flying to and from their overnight shelters. So that's sort of what we expected, except that the the robins sort of kept coming and didn't stop. And at some point, someone realizes that we we were needed to be keeping a more accurate count, and we started blocking off groups of robins and tens and then hundreds and then thousands, and, and still the robins didn't didn't stop. So we so we stood there and the birds kept coming over in dozens and dozen dozens at a time to the point where we just had to leave because otherwise it would have felt like we'd been counting robins all day. In my memory I wanted to say that they were millions of robins, because that's how I remember it. But when I look back at the total for that year, I can see that it was it was really just shy of about 10,000, which is, which is pedestrian, but it still beat the high count by more than a factor of 20. I distinctly remember, though, being tasked by my team uh, with reading out the day's totals at the countdown dinner that evening, and sort of the oohs and ahs that accompanied that total when I read it out. I now look back on it, and I know that the people of the Greater Ozarks Audubon Society, who who had wholeheartedly taken me in as a young birder, were sort of humoring me a little bit. I, I guess I appreciate it now. The, the spectacle of that many birds passing over, even though it wasn't all that much in the whole scheme of things, meant a lot to me as a young birder. And the memory is always better than the reality anyway. So let's get to the other stories. ABA web developer Greg Neese has been a frequent contributor to the podcast this year. He also has a young birder story, one about remarkable discoveries in mundane situations. It was December 18th, 1977. I was 14 years old and sent out on a snowy day on the Chicago Ornithological Society Christmas count to do a part of the Morton Arboretum uh, about 20 miles west of Chicago that nobody else really wanted to bird the classic throw the kid out there and so it was a big patch of deciduous kind of parkland uh woods toss the kid out there to count chickadees and downy woodpeckers so i start off on this trek across country um so there's a there's a loop road that goes around this property and i was dropped off on one side i'd walk across and somebody would pick me up on the other side at least that was the plan so I'm about halfway across, it's about a mile, about halfway across, and uh, I come to this hill. The snow is almost up to my waist. I'm contemplating, do I go up the hill or do I go around the hill? And while I'm standing there, I hear this sound that I know I've never heard before, a bird call that's coming from up, and I realize it's coming from up in the sky. A flock of uh, robin-sized birds comes landing in the trees at the top of the hill. So I walk up this hill and I get a good look at these birds and they're pine grosbeaks. And there's about 20 of them. 
And uh, I, uh, I had just seen my life or Pine Grove speak a week before in Wisconsin. So I knew what they were, but I really didn't understand how unusual, uh, how rare really they were in Illinois. Um, and while I'm standing there contemplating them, more of them flew in. And soon this uh, hill, was, which uh, was called Ash Hill, covered with ash trees, uh, the trees were full of pine grosbeaks. There were 80 birds up there feeding. So I tallied them and I continued on, walked across and got to the road and there was nobody there. So I walked to the headquarters building at the Morton Arboretum, which is, there's a little cafe there and you know, people would stop in and have a cup of coffee or whatever. And the, you know, the Christmas count wasn't it was as much a social thing then as it was anything else. It was birders coming and going all day long from the cafe. And uh, so I told people what I found and nobody believed me. Now, today, you know, the first question you'd say is, oh, was it a house finch? Well, in 1977, there were no house finches in Illinois. This was before they, they made that move. So the question was, were they purple finches? And even then, a flock of 80 purple finches was really uncommon. So I was getting questioned. Were they robins? Well, yes, I'm sure they were not robins. But finally, somebody put me in a car and we drove out there and we marched across and I showed them the hill and there was 80 pine grosbeaks and pandemonium ensued. <laughs> we drove back to the headquarters building, told people there, everybody dropped what they were doing, ran out to go see them. Word got around and before you know it, Everybody on that part of the count was dropping what they were doing to go see the pine grosbeaks. This flock of birds, I think, got up to about 85, maybe, stayed there for a month until they ate all the ash seeds in that little grove on top of the hill. Many, many, many people got to see them. And then they took off. And that was the biggest flock of pine grosbeaks ever recorded in, in Illinois in modern history. And remains still the biggest flock of them ever seen. Uh, and to put it into perspective, since since then, the forty years since then, this forty years actually this this week coming up here, there have been about fifteen pine grosbeaks recorded in the state of Illinois in the last forty years since then. And yeah, that was my best Christmas count. Jody Allaire of Bird Studies Canada has his hands in a lot of CBCs. Bird Studies Canada is the Audubon's Canadian partner and coordinates the project in Canada. I talked to Jody back in spring about the great Canadian bird count. In his CBC story, he talks about how a memorable count is not always about the birds you find. Christmas bird counts have played an important part in my upbringing as a young birder. And in 2005, I got the opportunity to take on my very own Christmas bird count. And uh, that count was the Dinosaur Provincial Park Christmas bird count. If you don't know where Dinosaur Provincial Park is, it's about two and a half hours east of Calgary, Alberta. And it was about two hours southwest of Drumheller, Alberta, where I was living at the time. So this was, for me, such a great opportunity to coordinate my first Christmas bird count in a place that is is really, really incredible. The Dinosaur Provincial Park area, it's a vast, wild prairie and badland landscape. You know, and, and in the wintertime, at times it feels really like an empty winter wonderland. But what's not to like? You know, who knows 
what secrets lie in this unburdened expanse. So to accomplish this task, I needed to recruit some close friends and colleagues. And uh, I remember pretty clearly the responses to my initial sales pitch, uh, you know, quite clearly. So the most common response was, so what are we going to see? And my answer was usually, well, I have no idea, probably not much, but whatever we find will be awesome. Well, you know, we did find some birds on those first two uh, Christmas bird counts, you know, 23 and 24 species on the first two years. But that included some real gems like golden eagle, uh, sharp-tailed grouse, and even a mountain chickadee, which is a really good species anywhere east of the Rockies. The big highlights, though, for me were the were the fun and the laughter and not getting hypothermia, which I suppose is a backhanded version of a highlight when you're doing a count on the Canadian prairies. But the big lasting memory for me is the wrap-up dinner. There's There's really only one small town in this part of Alberta called Patricia. It has a population of 101 people, and there's only one bar and hotel called the Patricia Hotel. And uh, this is a wonderful little small town. And as is tradition in many of these rural Albertan restaurants, uh, we're responsible for cooking our own food in an open barbecue in the middle of the restaurant. And doing the tally with, you know, some really close friends uh, after a day of only seeing a few birds, but some really spectacular birds, you know, that's really special. I think, you know, it's tough to explain the appeal to someone who hasn't experienced a Christmas bird count. And for me, you know, Christmas bird counts are more than just a birding event. You know, in, in many cases, they're this really great excuse, not only to collect valuable citizen science data, but it's the excuse to spend some quality time doing something we love with with friends and family. And uh, for me, that those early days of the Dinosaur Provincial Park count are are fond memories. I talked to prairie bird biologist Scott Summershoe about a year ago about chestnut-collared longspurs. While there are a lot of stories about finding amazing birds on Christmas bird counts, there are not as many about nearly missing them because of a Christmas bird count. Scott has more. This is Scott Summershoe. My Christmas bird counts story that was fairly memorable. There have been lots of really great Christmas counts over the years and lots of neat stories and wild birds, etc. This one sort of stands out, not just because of the Christmas count and the, the count itself, but the birding situation surrounding the count, the drama, the twitchiness that I couldn't do anything about in the process. It was December 20, 2011, and I'm sitting in a doctor's office in Nashville, and I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there. I was there for over an hour. I have no idea why. The doctor's office was always so slow. And I'm sitting there, and, I, and of course, I've got my, my old smartphone. I get an email from one of the local birders in Chattanooga and it goes, there's a hooded crane down at the Hiawassee Wildlife Management Area, the Wildlife Refuge. And they have the pictures of it and they're like trying to confirm this thing and figure out what was going on. And I go, what is a hooded crane? I had to sit there and Google and I was like, oh, this is a pretty rare bird. Obviously not from around here. I didn't know anything about them. So I forwarded it along to Chris Sloan, one of my birder buddies in, in Tennessee and he's like, holy mackerel. And so the word got out while I'm sitting in the doctor's office. Of course, I can't do anything about it. And I can't go and go after the bird. And the very next, you know, I couldn't do it that day. And the very next morning, we had to head to southeast Georgia to 
do a Christmas count on one of the barrier islands and you go out the one day you spend the night, do the Christmas count, leave the island the next day on the boat. And it's, it's always a great count and lots of really good birds. And I, I think I set the Christmas count high of 47 screech owls, which are super easy to whistle. You just, you just whistle up just a little bit and two or three start calling from no matter where you are on that island. Um, I, since eclipsed that total a couple times and significantly higher tallies, but that was 47 was my high at the time. And a great count where that fortunately the hooded crane was still there. I kept trying to check. There barely any internet out on the island. And on our date way back on the 19th of December, it was still there. And we got to, my wife and I got to um, Hiawassee right about sunset. And the hooded crane was out there. Fortunately, had it's been go, coming and going. It hadn't been just in the same spot all day. Got super lucky. The bird was there. Got pictures of it with uh, with whooping cranes and or a couple of whooping cranes and a, you know a thousand sandhill cranes. I was also doing a you know sort of accidental big year Tennessee big year in 2011. So I was particularly twitchy about that bird. So in the end, I got to see do the Christmas count. Had a great time at the Christmas count. Saw a lot of wonderful birds down there on the on the coast, and then still managed to get the the hooded crane. Noah Stricker joined me a couple months ago to talk about his global big year memoir, Birding Without Borders, so perhaps it's appropriate that he's back now to tell the tale of the one and only Christmas bird count in Antarctica. In the Antarctic summer of 2008, I was living with two researchers in an isolated field camp at a place called Cape Crozier on Ross Island, roughly south of New Zealand, studying penguins. In Antarctica, of course, summer is during the northern winter, which meant I'd be there over the holidays, and so I'd miss the entire North American Christmas bird count season. What to do? There had never been a CBC in Antarctica, ever. The closest one was from a ship in the Drake Passage south of South America. But there was no reason why it wasn't possible. One of the CBC criteria is that any count should document birds that spent at least some part of their lives in North America. Well, we had two. The South Polar Skua and the Wilson Storm Petrel, both of which migrate to the Northern Hemisphere. The organizers had to create a new section in the CBC database, but they approved the idea. So, I set the date for December 25th, 2008 and just prayed for good weather. A hundred mile an hour catabatic windstorm had recently flattened my tent, but luckily Christmas Day dawned crisp and clear about 10 degrees below zero. Well, I say dawned, but the sun doesn't actually set in December. It was almost as bright at midnight as it was at noon. Christmas was a work day. I headed out with my two research mates collecting data on a large colony of Adelie penguins. To reach the colony, I strapped on crampons, crossed a glacier, and then spent about eight hours wandering among the nesting birds looking for banded ones. As usual, we split up, so I was mostly by myself with the penguins all day. A kind of a zen CBC experience. Actually, counting them was an issue, as Cape Crozier is one of the world's largest penguin colonies. It's estimated to have about 300,000 and there's no way to count that high individually. There are scientists that make a whole career out of counting penguins, but for the purposes of this CBC, we had to make an estimate. So, in the afternoon, 
the three of us researchers spent an extra hour to painstakingly count several subcolonies of Adelis for an exact figure. And then, using a GIS program, we extrapolated that density to the whole colony. It was as close as we could come, and was actually probably pretty accurate. There were a few other birds. The highlight for me was a pair of emperor penguins, those ones from that movie with Morgan Freeman, March of the Penguins. Emperors nest in the Antarctic winter and should disperse by midsummer, so we were pretty lucky to record them so late on our CBC. At the end of the day, back in our tiny hut, with no shower or fresh food, although I had plenty of frozen meat and veggies to cook on a propane stove, we tallied up our results on a laptop with solar power. Officially, the first ever Antarctic CBC found 270,885 Adelie penguins, 79 South Polar skuas, 6 snow petrels, 2 emperor penguins, and one Wilson Storm Petrel, six species, and 270,973 individuals, of which 99.97% were penguins. I've since spent several more Christmases in Antarctica, and I'll actually be down there again this season, although as far as I know, the Antarctic CBC has never been repeated. These days I'm a guide on a polar expedition cruise ship where we celebrate the holiday with champagne toasts and caroling around a bar decorated with fake greenery. It's a little more luxurious than life in a research camp, but I'll never forget that day alone out on the ice with all those penguins. The first CBC at the end of the world. And last, ABA President Jeffrey Gordon and events coordinator and general everything doer Liz Gordon add one more story about how one person's legacy can live on through the Christmas bird count. Hi, this is Liz. And this is Jeff. And our Christmas count story has to do with the Rehoboth, Delaware count. It's held in southern Delaware down along the ocean shore and around the edges of Rehoboth and Indian River Bays. And it's a count that has been part of my life and my birding year since I was a young teenager. And it was when Liz and I were first together and early in our marriage, we were living down in the count circle. And it's, it's just always been one of our favorite counts. And we're about to do it again this Saturday, uh, December 30th. And our friend Sally O'Byrne is now the compiler she took over after we did. Anyway, a highlight of doing the count was always hosting the tally rally. And we'd have it at our house, and it was pretty much our holiday party. It was a chance to have our birding friends over, and we'd put on a couple of pots of, you know, fun things to eat. And it was just a really good time. And we had one guy who never came to the our actual tally rally, but he was a huge presence in the Christmas count. And his name was Sam Dyke. Dyke. Yeah. And Sam was from Salisbury, Maryland, and he and his buddies would come up and count. The place is actually called Asa Woman Wildlife Area. It's got some freshwater wetlands. And because of that, it's, it's got, um, you know, birds that you don't, get elsewhere in the circle it's more salt water sam was just this amazing guy he amazing. he looked like he you know stepped 
out of a off a cover of Field and Stream or something. Ruggedly handsome. Yeah, and just um, you know, really, in he was a a duck hunter. He was a birder, um, very active with the Ward Museum in Salisbury of of wildfowl art and decoys. Just just a wonderful guy. Very old school, but um, terrific. And 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 he played this really really mm. crucial role each year at this tally rally, even though he was never physically there. Now the reason Sam wasn't there. It wasn't because he didn't want to be. Is because he lived far away. To get to Assawoman Bay, you had to go an hour or so to around Salisbury, and and so for him to drive up and go to the party and then drive back home would be too long. So he would just call in his list to us. He he didn't have email, and and uh, so we we'd get his list. He would call Jeff, and and it was awesome because he always got. You know, like Jeff said, the freshwater birds. And and so when we were having the count and we'd sit around and say, okay, who has, you know, this and that? You'd get to blue wing teal and everybody would look around. It was kind of a, who, we, we miss blue wing teal? And then all of a sudden out of the corner of the room there'd be... Sam Dyke. He was just constantly, it was... It's just kind of saving the day over and over because, like, when you're going through these tally rallies and, and, you know, nobody wants the cumulative count to miss something. And just over and over, it'd be like sort of, okay, who had snipe? Pregnant pause. Sam Dyke. And it just was this really fun ritual year after totally year. Totally fun ritual. And, and you know, I mean, there was some eccentricity involved with Sam not doing the email and everything else. But, like, I don't know, somehow... His presence and his way of being um, was just kind of infused the whole evening and the whole memory for us. And you know, Sam passed away um, back in 2014. You know, it, so it just kind of means that, that in a way, each year when we go there now, we, don't, we not only have all these memories of wonderful birds and we get to see, you know, friends and everything, but... When we, we get to those freshwater birds, man, it's like blue wing teal. <laughs> and we all look at each other and it's almost with tears in our eyes we say, Sam, Sam Dyke. Dyke. Or, or, you know, wish that he was still back with us and, and remember how much fun it was when he was around. So I know that, that our community of birding and a community of Christmas counters... Um, you know, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of those people and those memories. And um, and there's something that we really treasure. So um, happy Christmas counting. Happy New Year. And good luck getting all those birds. Don't miss your starlings. <laughs> happy trails, everybody. Thanks, folks. A quick couple notes to add before I say goodbye for the year. There is no better time than the end of the year to make corrections, right? I have two, both from the last episode. The first, I, I don't know why I pronounced the name of the town where the ABA first missile thrush was seen like it was Japanese rather than French-Canadian, but I did. It's not Miramichi, it's Miramichi, which makes sense had I thought about it for more than 10 seconds. You know how things get stuck in your head one way and it's hard to see or hear them anyway else. Anyway, consider that corrected. And two, in the discussion Ted Floyd and I had about bird common names, we make reference to the name change from old squaw to long-tailed duck. And one of us, I, I don't recall who, calls long-tailed duck the new name 
And it was, of, of course, for North American birders, but the rest of the world had known it as long-tailed duck for decades, probably longer. And the change in North America was more the adoption of the old world name for a Klingula hyemalis than any sort of new name. And as far as adoption of old world names, that's, that's not such a bad one. I would also consider diver instead of loon. I've always been partial to that. But you can have my black-bellied plover when you pry it from my cold, boring gray arms. Thanks to Colin Conroy from Middlesbrough, UK, for that correction. On a side note, we have UK listeners. Hello! I'm sure that the rare bird alert is of particular interest to you all. I actually have some ideas for content that will be of interest to birders on both sides of the Atlantic in the coming years, so be on the lookout for that. A last note of thanks to all the listeners that have come along in this first full year of the American Birding Podcast. I do really appreciate the kind words and emails and in reviews of the podcast on Apple Podcast. I, I really enjoyed meeting a lot of you at the biggest week and at the American Birding Expo this year. It's really gratifying to know that this endeavor is being enjoyed by, by so many people. I'm really looking forward to 2018, and I am glad that you are along for the ride. So I hope you get all the yearbirds you need in the last few days of 2017, and I hope you get a great start on your year list for 2018. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We're in our year-end appeal. Anything you can give to help us continue to provide these sorts of free resources, we definitely appreciate. We know that birders are great shares of information, sightings, of identification tips, of experiences. It's hard to translate that sort of thing into a dollar amount, but maybe we can try. Uh, the website is www.ava.org slash appeal2017. Don't forget the two. Uh, thanks in advance. You can also join the ABA at aba.org slash join. Members get subscriptions to Birding and Birder's Guide magazines. That's 10 issues per year. Also discounts on video books and a number of other partners. The opportunity to travel with ABA events and the knowledge that they are helping to contribute to the birding community in North America and beyond. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is from John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. One more time for the cheap seats, not to be confused for the American Bell Association. This is this is a real organization. They were founded for the collection, study, preservation, restoration, and research of all kinds of bells. They're not inclined to chime in on their own, but you can give them a ring if this is something that, that resonates with you. You might try to get to the president, uh, Carol, on the phone and direct your questions toward her. She might be able to answer, though if your question strikes her as tone deaf, she'll clap her phone down and you won't be able to get your answer. You ding dong. That's it. I'm done. I'll come up with something new for 2018. I appreciate your tolerance this year. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nitswick. Thanks for listening. Catch you in the new year.